Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. But wait, there's more. You can now contribute through Venmo and Zelle by using my email address spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 414 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3, Rescue Mission. From the previous episode, the second crew had managed to rendezvous with Skylab successfully and dock safely with their new home. But almost immediately the whole crew experienced space adaptation syndrome. However, by mission day 6, August 2, 1973, things were beginning to improve. The difficult rendezvous was several days in the past, and after initial problems adjusting to life aboard the station, the crew was finally feeling more adapted. Life on board the orbital workstation was gradually falling into a routine. However, there was one lingering problem with the command module quad thruster packs. Owen Garriott described how the problem was discovered on day six as such. Quote, When we awoke that morning, we were getting right to work. I was checking my weight or body mass in the slowly oscillating chair. The time period of oscillation was measuring the mass. Al might have been getting our EVA hardware ready, while Jack was getting out the pre-packaged breakfasts for all of three of us. Jack happened to look out the wardroom window when he saw a very unusual sight and called me over to look. It was the first of a good many beautiful auroras we could see, in this case near New Zealand. We admired the long folded sheets of green curtains whose slow motion was noticeable with careful observation. It was sometimes ringed with red at higher altitudes caused by a different chemical reaction in the high atmosphere about 90 kilometers or 55 miles or more above the Earth's surface, but still more than 300 kilometers beneath our Skylab perch in space. A most unique opportunity to view. 
I was just about to call the ground half a world away when a snowstorm came blowing by our wardroom window. End quote. Now, obviously, snowstorms don't happen in space, but the crew quickly understood that something was leaking from Skylab somewhere, most likely from the Apollo spacecraft docked at the far end of the station. This was confirmed by a caution and warning alarm in the Skylab. Beam and Lausma quickly moved through the workshop, the airlock, and the multiple docking adapter to the command module where they confirmed that another of their spacecraft's quad thrusters had sprung a leak, even though all valves were turned off. At the same time, on the ground, the guidance and navigation controller informed the flight director that temperatures in the Quad D reaction control system pack were falling and advised switching to secondary heaters. Quad D was located on the opposite side of the service module from the already failed Quad B thruster pack. Now, with help from Mission Control, the systems were reconfigured so that all propellants to both of the leaking quad thruster packs were completely shut off. Lausma recalled, quote, I think for me, that was probably the low point of the mission because it threatened our ability to get our job done and I wasn't willing to come home. I've never been afraid in space, but that was a fear that I had, losing the mission more than anything else. End quote. Data indicated 12 pounds of oxidizer had been lost, which was less than 10% of the available propellant. But only two of the four quad thrusters were now functionable. Of course, this called for quite a bit of evaluation, especially at mission control. Two vital questions came to mind immediately. Was it possible for the crew to return to Earth safely in a command module with only half of its quad thrusters working? Additionally, was the problem only affecting the two thrusters or would the others eventually fail also? With those and several other potential problems, it was obvious the exact cause of the leaks had to be found as well as its potential to affect the other quads. And this brought on more questions. Could the crew successfully re-enter the atmosphere with only one usable quad if there was another failure? Or should they come home immediately before there were any more failures? If not, was it possible to implement a rescue mission for the crew. Could a command module be retrofitted quickly enough to allow two crewmen to fly up to the Skylab, then return with the three-man Skylab crew? Of course, the Skylab crew was really interested in the answer to these questions, and since it was their lives at risk, they wanted to participate in the decision-making process.
Now, the ground initially thought that there could be a contamination of nitrogen tetroxide that affected the two quads. If so, the worst case that could be expected was the loss of both quad pack A and quad pack C. In other words, all thrusters would fail. Furthermore, if the leaks persisted, other internal circuits could soon render the service module a total loss. By mid-morning, the press was informed that a rescue mission might be launched. If rescue was not an option, then the second crew of Skylab would have to return home as soon as possible before losing all the RCS quads. Al Beam remembered that the crew got a call from Johnson Space Center Director Chris Kraft to discuss how to proceed. The crew told Kraft that despite the problems, they wanted to stay and complete their mission. The crew was concerned that they were going to make them undock and come home, which they didn't want to do, naturally. On mission day six, a second quad thruster indicated failure. Even so, command module control was still adequate for the return flight. However, the uncertainty of additional failure prompted an urgent decision. Hey, uh, Al, this is Chris Kraft. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, as far as the uh, RCS system is concerned, we uh, really can't determine at this particular moment whether we have a generic problem or whether we have some two unique problems with these uh, quads. Now, just to be prudent, however, we have started the uh, preparation of the vehicle at the cave on a, on a uh, accelerated basis so that we would have a rescue vehicle uh, available to us should that become necessary. Okay, now, I guess in concluding, I'd like to say that further that we're proceeding here with uh, as if we're going to have a nominal mission. And if you feel like you need any further discussion on this thing, feel free to call us in any way which you want to. John, uh, you just said the right words. We've been uh, hoping you'd say that all day. Ever since we found out that uh, that was a true uh, problem that we had with our quads this morning. And we, uh, we agree 100% with what you just announced. Okay, so be it. So as a precaution, rescue plans were set in motion. Whether they would be carried out completely depended on assessment of the thruster problem, a problem that could now be fully explored. Owen Garriott recalled, quote, Basically, we felt secure. Skylab was working well. There was plenty of food and water for many months. The only issue for us was a successful return to Earth. We had worked so long and hard to get here. We certainly did not want to come home now. End quote. In fact, the astronauts were in no imminent danger on board the station. They had supplies far in excess of their planned visit. But as NASA engineers reviewed the situation and their options, the crew definitely feared a shortened mission.
And with so much uncertainty about the Skylab situation, NASA decided to begin planning a rescue mission that, if necessary, could bring the crew home safely. At Kennedy Space Center, a rescue mode of assembly and launch operations was put into effect. An Apollo spacecraft, which could be used as a rescue vehicle, was checked out on an accelerated 24-hour, seven-day-per-week schedule. Skylab was the first manned spaceflight program to have a rescue capability. It called for two astronauts to fly a five-seat spacecraft into Earth orbit, rescue the stranded crew, and return to Earth. The launch vehicle for the rescue operation, a two-stage Saturn 1B rocket, was erected and checked out under a similar accelerated schedule. Within three weeks after the rescue mode was initiated, the rescue vehicle was moved to Pad B of Complex 39, and launch pad preparations were begun. The idea of a rescue mission was not a new thing. In fact, planning for the possibility of a rescue mission had begun years earlier. The first small step toward rescue capability was conceptualized with George Miller's flip chart sketch of a basic version of what would eventually become Skylab, which led to the creation of the multiple docking adapter with its extra radio docking port. The port would be unused during normal operations, but the adapter provided a means for two command modules to dock with the station at the same time if there was ever a need for such a rescue mission. The assumption was a crew could experience a problem where they would be unable to return in the Apollo spacecraft they flew into orbit. In this case, a second command module would be able to dock with the station at the unused radial port. The plan was the disabled capsule would be jettisoned before the Skylab crew left on the rescue vehicle. This would free up the axial port for the next crew. But until the rescue crew made it to Skylab, the disabled vehicle would be left docked to Skylab so that its communications equipment could still be used. Of course, to perform a rescue mission, NASA would have to modify a spacecraft to be able to carry more crewmen than the standard three-person Apollo command module. NASA did not have the capability for autonomous rendezvous and docking, so the rescue craft would have to be launched with a crew. The problem was each seat filled on the way up would be one less available for the ride back. Since there were three astronauts in the Skylab 3 crew, a standard Apollo capsule would not be able to bring them all home. Strangely enough, Jack Lausma and Alan Bean, who were now possibly in need of rescue, had played an important role in the design of the rescue mission spacecraft. Not because anyone expected they would need to be rescued, but because it was believed 
they could be the first people that might have to fly a rescue mission in the event that it was needed to bring the first crew of Skylab home. By late 1971, work on the rescue vehicle configuration had progressed well. Testing had begun on some of the modifications. Lausma recalled working on the configuration for the five-man re-entry command module of Al Bean. They were tasked to provide operator input on the design of the spacecraft. Lausma said, quote, We spent a considerable amount of time at Rockwell going through the same sort of design reviews for the modified Apollo that would have been needed for any new spacecraft. We configured it such that there would be two couches on the floor underneath the main couch, one on each side of the package between us, which was going to be critical experimental data. End quote. The design was for three people to come down in the main couches and two would be in the couches under the left and right seat. Lausma said, quote, They had couches that fastened to the inside of the heat shield. It was like a molded seat you might lay in on a beach. It probably just had some tack-down, tie-down, or fasten-down points. So when Pete Conrad went up, that configuration was already confirmed. Quote. There was, however, a concern involving the potential stroking of the upper deck of couches. You see, the standard Apollo couches were designed to stroke or have their supports compress like a shock absorber on a car in the event of a hard landing. This was usually not necessary for water landing. The stroking was just an additional safety feature included in the event a crew had to make an unplanned landing on hard ground. If that happened, the supports would stroke, thus absorbing some of the force and ideally preventing injury to the crew. For the rescue mission, the concern was that if a couch did stroke, it would drop onto the astronaut in the couch below, which would probably cause injury. However, since no couch had ever stroked during the entire Apollo flight program, the risk was considered acceptable. The addition of two additional couches came at the sacrifice of a substantial amount of room for stowage in the lower equipment bay. So bringing the crew home from Skylab in the rescue spacecraft meant that the Skylab crew would have to leave behind much of what they would have otherwise brought back with them, including results of experiments conducted during their stay. But there was a location between the crew members for stowage. This area was reserved 
for the highest priority items to be returned to Earth. Additionally, any leftover space in the lower area could be used for stowage. Lausma said, quote, There was a priority list of what we wanted to bring back because we couldn't bring it all back. End quote. Bean said, quote, The highest priority items in pre-mission planning were the frozen urine samples and dried fecal samples. They would then be studied to ensure it was safe for the next cruise to stay even longer in space. End quote. Back on Skylab, with nothing they could do about the thruster situation for now, the crew moved ahead with life on board the station. But on the ground, two astronauts were being called up for prime crew duty on the rescue mission. The backup crew for the second and third manned Skylab missions were Commander Vance Brand, Science Pilot Bill Lenore, and pilot Don Lynn. All three men had never flown in space. The two pilot astronauts, Brand and Lind, were selected with the fifth group of astronauts. Lenore was selected with the sixth group, which was the second class of science astronauts. In addition to their backup crew duties, Brand and Lind were also assigned to the possible Skylab rescue mission. So far, those duties were mainly providing crew input on planning. For example, they were involved in resting procedures for use of the modified vehicle. In truth, they were the prime crew for a flight that did not exist yet. But now, with the problems being experienced with Skylab 3, that flight changed from theoretical to imminent. Vance Brand recalled, quote, I don't remember the exact time that I found out. Of course, you know that the backup crew included three guys, and if you had a rescue, there really was only room for two crewmen going up so that five could come down. Fairly early on, without much delay, Don Lind and I found out that we would be the rescue crew. We were pretty enthusiastic because we hadn't flown in a spaceship. I suspect that Bill Lenore was disappointed that it wasn't him, but Don Lind was elated, of course. All the members of the crew had trained for each role, and any of them would have been qualified for any role. I was not in the discussion that selected the crew. We just found out. Both were capable of doing that job. Bill was a scientist, but also an excellent engineer and pilot. Everybody cross-trained for everything. End quote. Now, Brandon Lynn hit the ground running preparing for the mission, as did many engineers, flight controllers, and others throughout the agency and its contractors. Brand recalled, quote, We had about a month to get ready. I know that we decided very quickly after they had the two thruster quad failures 
Everybody felt really under the gun. The hardware was being prepared at the Cape in a typical fashion. The agency, but mostly Johnson Space Center, really was responsible to have everything ready in a month. Several tasks were occurring simultaneously involving several different groups. You will recall the effort that was mounted when the first manned mission encountered a damaged Skylab and the parasol and all of that. Well, this was, while not quite that big, on the same order. It was significant. Everybody was pulling together. End quote. Flight Director Phil Schaefer recalled, quote, Engineers were preparing the modifications that would allow Apollo Command and Service Module CSM-119 to be used to carry its two pilots and the three Skylab astronauts safely home from orbit and rapidly readying the Saturn 1B to launch it. The CAPE had accelerated their preparations of the Skylab 4 vehicle, and all the stuff to configure it for a rescue was in place. End quote. While all this was going on, engineers on the ground were continuing to work on discovering what had caused the thruster leaks in orbit. Fairly quickly, they concluded that the two leaks were in fact isolated incidents with minimal chance of the Quad A and Quad C failing as well. Meanwhile, astronaut hopefuls Brand and Lind were spending long hours in simulators, not only training for the specific requirements of this rescue mission, but also making dry runs on the ground to ensure that everything would work as planned. Additionally, they provided crew input to the other groups as they worked on different aspects of the mission. Brand recalled, quote, We were involved in not only training, but the planning, certification and verification, and stowage, and that the couch redesign would work. We were just involved in a lot of general planning on how you would do this, which made it especially interesting, end quote. Brand added that the many obligations kept him and Lind very busy during that time. Back in Florida, the Cape reacted to the rescue mission with extreme haste. They decided to move the command and service module to the vehicle assembly building by August 10th, and in a condensed and accelerated launch, mate the Apollo to the Saturn 1B and install the stack on the pad within 72 hours. They believed flight readiness test could be completed by August 24th, with the propellant loading scheduled for August 27th and a launch on September 5th. The mission duration was set for a maximum of five days with splashdown on December 10th. Any worries that the crew in orbit had that their mission might be brought to an abrupt end after the second thruster failure 
were dismissed reasonably quickly. Only a few days after the failure, the ground informed them that the rescue flight could not come and get them for at least a month. That meant there was no reason to bring them home early, which meant they could finish out the full duration of their mission. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the details of the rescue mission. The rescue mission was unique in NASA's history. Nothing like it had ever been tried. However, the actual flight profile was not that unusual. The launch, rendezvous, and docking portions were very similar to the previous crewed flights to the Skylab. In fact, Brand called it, quote, pretty much a standard rendezvous, except, of course, they would have been using the radial dock instead of the axial, which had never been tried, end quote. The time spent in orbit would be relatively standard. The rescue crew would have to make sure certain things were brought back. Of course, the most important thing was getting the people back. The return to Earth would be hopefully standard, even though some of the mass that normally would have been cargo would now be the Skylab crew. Brand said, quote, Because of all the similarities with rendezvous, there wasn't so much risk. I guess you would have to say that looking at the overall thing, the main risk was just in chartering another mission. There's always a risk with any mission because you could lose an engine or something. Of course, the other risk is any time you do things in a hurry, there's always a chance you might have overlooked something. Though we didn't think we did. And we probably both would have had a little more to do in flight because there were two crewmen instead of three, end quote. During training, a few interesting points about the reconfigured spacecraft were made painfully obvious. Don Lind told this story, quote, One of the funniest things was when they had to reconfigure a command module with five seats, and we had to run all the tests and so forth. Well, a command module has two stable configurations when floating in the water. One in the normal point-up position, which they call stable one. But it would also float in good stability with the cone pointing straight down. That puts the seats not exactly strapped to the ceiling, but in a very strange position, very high up on the wall as it starts to curve into the ceiling. So, we had this test. We took a test crew that was going to be rescued. Vance and I had some experience with this thing in Stable 2 with just the two of us. But I realized out in the ocean with the waves pitching and rocking back and forth, it was incredibly difficult to tell which direction was down. So we did this 
with five crew members. I was briefing the other three, and I said, You won't be able to tell which way is down. So, when I tell you to unstrap, be sure you're hanging onto something because you may feel like you're falling straight up. Everybody looked at me like, Oh, come on, Lind. How dumb do you think we are? Well, it turned out when we got in Stable 2 that Bill Lenore was the first one to unstrap. And as he did so, he just opened the seat buckle and fell up and slammed against the bulkhead. He looked at me like, Lind, if you say anything, I'll get you. Of course, the other two were hanging on when they unbuckled. So there were interesting little light notes even as we were getting ready to fly, end quote. About a month after work began on the rescue mission, NASA was confident that it could be flown successfully and the hardware was available. A pretty amazing feat and a lot of work completed at a rapid pace. For Brand and Lynn, however, helping to successfully plan the rescue mission did not mean that it was time to relax. Instead, they were given a new task and had to shift gears and start again. More long hours in the simulator awaited. Now, after having proven that a rescue mission could be flown, NASA began looking into whether it could be avoided. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 414 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3 Rescue Mission Part 1. Our next episode should be released on or about June 1st, 2023. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and typing in your email in the text box. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 233 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist. And you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash SpaceRocketHistory. As usual, I have a few afterthoughts. First of all, I would like to apologize for my mispronunciations. And... I would like to give a big shout out to Chris W. Chris has a bookstore in Silva, North Carolina called City Lights Bookstore. 
And he came across a book he thought I might be interested in, and he sent it to me. It's about the Pisgah Astronomical Research Institute. Now, this was opened by NASA in 1963 to track satellites and manned spaceflights, and it also collected data for the Department of Defense from 1982 to 1995. What makes it kind of special to me is it's located in western North Carolina. <laughs> I had no idea. It's in a city called uh, Roseman, our town called Roseman. That is about 155 miles from my house. The title of the book is Pisgah Astronomical Research Institute, An Untold History of Spacemen and Spies. I have perused the book a bit, and it looks pretty good. So thank you, Chris, for sending that out. Last episode, I mentioned the confusing nomenclature of the Skylab program, and I told you about the Easter egg I put in episode 412. So far, Marco is the only listener who found the Easter egg. So I will go ahead and tell you what it is, so if you want to, you can look for it. You have to go back to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and find episode 412. You can just scroll down the page and find that, and look at the middle picture. Click the picture, and zoom in on the emblem on the door of the van. It shows the astronaut's name, but it calls the mission Skylab 2. Well, I hope everyone realizes by now that this mission is officially Skylab 3. So, this is an example of how confusing things got when they decided to give the launch of the orbital workshop the mission designation of Skylab 1. So, the crew numbers and the mission numbers don't match up. Now, in case you missed this, I explained the reason for that in the previous episode 413. So you can go back and listen to that in the afterthoughts if you want to hear it. Regarding this episode, did you know about the second thruster failure? Did you know that failure and the fear of another quad pack failure prompted NASA to prepare a rescue mission. Did you know about a rescue mission for this ep- for this uh, crew? That's what I really enjoy about these missions. The details that are not common knowledge. You can look at history on the surface or if you want You can take a little deeper dive and find out that there was a lot of issues and problems going on with these missions that were barely mentioned or not mentioned at all. In fact, I think every Apollo moon mission something went wrong on. And I covered that, and you can go back and check me if you want to. I also find it helpful when I study these missions 
to try to imagine myself in the astronaut's position or the flight director's position or NASA's position, to try to look at it as it was in their position with what they knew at, their, at that time because it was the present to them. It's history to us, but it's the present to them. So they don't know what's going to happen. They just have to make decisions based on their judgment. You see, the second crew was just getting over space sickness. And they had spent so much time preparing for this mission. And then, everything looks like it's finally calming down, that they can have a successful mission. And then another thruster fails. It leaks. Now this is getting serious, because you have four of those quad packs, and you've now lost two. They, the crew, were worried that NASA might make them come back home as soon as possible before any more leaks had a chance to occur. Now, losing a mission was kind of a traumatic experience, and the crew did not want that to happen. As you can imagine, if you work for something that long, and you go through all that, and you're throwing up every night, Throwing up every day, your stomach feels sick, and you go through all that mess. And not let alone all you have to do to just get launched into space. And then you have to come right back. That is just like a terrible disappointment. And, and it's a bit traumatic if they would have to go through that. But the ground, they were unsure what the problem was. And they were very concerned it had the potential to spread to the last two thrusters on that service module. And if they lost those, then you can forget about it. You're not going back in that, with that service module. It's not happening. You cannot maneuver to get into re-entry position. Nor did they know the crew could come back safely using just two thrusters. That hadn't been tried. They didn't know. But NASA did believe and had a plan for a rescue mission. They believed they had the capability to launch a rescue mission. So, obviously, they had to get that started going, start that movement on there because there wasn't going to be a lot of time. So they had to get that going because they weren't sure how long it would take to get everything ready because they'd never done it before. This was the first time it ever happened. But a rescue mission had its problems as well. It would put two more astronauts at risk. Every mission puts them at risk. Every launch is a dangerous situation. And there is a substantial cost as well. But you can't just leave them up there. So... I mean, you have to do something. So there was a lot to consider and plan for. This was a big, big deal for NASA and everybody involved. And uh, Brand and Lind, boy, they were they were uh, pretty happy. <laughs> they wanted to go in space so bad, and they kept getting on the backup, and they they were ready. Brand and Lind 
take that mission. They want to do it. They want to do it. <laughs> All right. Finally, moving on. In uh, personal news and house house news, uh, absolutely nothing has happened. No one has come out to make any repairs, or nor have we been contacted to set up a time for them to come out. So we're just waiting patiently, kind of dreading it in a way because they have a lot of drywall stuff to fix too, and it's going to make a terrible mess. Uh, oh, wait, wait a minute. We did have something has happened, but it's bad. I think the cracks in the basement have gotten a little bit bigger. I don't know when they're going to stop growing. They may finally get big enough for them to actually do something about. I'm supposed to have a 10-year warranty on it, but I don't know. And then I've kind of been thinking, and a, a listener actually suggested this, that um, I might should consider just putting uh, some type of flooring over that concrete. But I don't really have the money to do that right now. But that may be what I eventually do if they're not going to come and fix it. At least it would cover up the cracks and look a lot better down there. Because every time I go down there, I, I see those cracks and this, uh, I get irritated. On the farm, we have got our field planted with soybean now. And it's growing. And, of course, we do have our little vegetable garden planted as well to supply us with fresh vegetables during the uh, summer. And uh, that's pretty much all I can think of in my personal life. Let's move on to donations. Over the past fortnight, we received five donations and pledges. John Z. from Tennessee donated at the Orion level and earned a satellite emoji. Simon J., from Burley Heads, the golden sands of the Gold Coast, Queensland, Australia. Donated at the shuttle level and earned a rocket emoji. Salim S. from Indiana. Donated at the Mercury level. Daryl H. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. And Amanda H. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. Our total Patreon donors have reached uh, 241. That's about two less from last month. Uh, our total donors have reached, that includes everybody. It includes Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, Zelle, and Checks. For 2023, have reached 305. The goal is to reach 450 for this year. Will we make it? I don't know. It's tough. So, if you're enjoying this podcast that has been running now for over 10 years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Or you can use the QR codes to click on the donate for Venmo or Zelle using my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. 
The winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Joseph DV. Joseph DV, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 305 of you who have contributed thus far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Skylab, our first space station by Leland Bailu, Skylab, America's space station by David Shaler, Homesteading Space, the Skylab story by David Hitt, the Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that is all I have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 415 posted on or about June 1st. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.